Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast. It's June 19th. I'm Kimberly Johnson, broadcasting from D.C., and I'm really excited today because I'm going to be talking with Sarah Kenzior. She's a scholar of authoritarian states, author of The View from Flyover Country, and co-hosts the podcast Gaslit Nation with Andrea Chalupa on Patreon. Her next book, Hiding in Plain Sight, comes out in 2020, and I'm going to be asking her about the danger Vladimir Putin poses, both domestically and globally, and we'll also be talking about impeachment and a number of other things. It's going to be an interesting show. But before we get started... Start Me Up is supported by listeners, and we rely on patrons like you to keep us going. So I hope that you'll consider supporting the show with any dollar amount. Um, $5 gets you into the End Another Thing segment, which I usually do with Stephanie, who's not here today, or I sometimes do it with a guest. But today, I'm going to be flying solo, and I'm going to be talking about a project I'm working on, Gen X women, gender roles, and the conflicting messages that that we've received, and a few other things. So I, I hope that you'll stick around and sign up for that. You can just go to patreon.com slash start me up. And then you can also uh, check out the books that I've written. I wrote a book, Peyton's Choice, which is about teen abortion. The Virgin Diaries, which is about uh, a bunch of people telling everybody how they lost their virginity. American Woman, The Pole Dance, Women in Voting, and Ain't No Sunshine, Men Reveal the Pain of Heartbreak. That's all on Amazon. You can find it on my Amazon page by visiting Amazon and going to Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y-A Johnson. Um, Alrighty, so hopefully you'll sign up for the show, you'll check out my books, and now my conversation with Sarah Kenzior. Hey Sarah, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being on. I'm, I, it was short notice, and I appreciate it, but I have been wanting to talk to you for some time, so um, why don't we just dig in? <laughs> uh, okay, I, sounds I, good. I, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. Um, when I was 12 years old, I had the opportunity to live in Soviet Russia. My dad worked for ABC News, and so it was 1980-81 school year. I was, uh, I was in seventh grade, and so I got to see up close and personal, what it's like to live in a communist country, which is basically like a prison. And, you know, because my father and I um, were correspondents, or he was a correspondent, I should say, um, you know, we were like guests in a prison. So we had some privileges, but it was still a prison. And um, so I feel like even though I'm not an expert, I do have a little bit deeper understanding of who Putin is and what he wants because he worked for the KGB. That's what I want to ask you about. So basically, what do you see as his goal for, um, for, this, for this country and globally? I mean, in many ways, Putin's goals are the same as any autocrat. He wants power. He wants money. You know, he's allegedly the wealthiest man in the world. He wants territory. Uh, he wants immunity from any challenges to his power. I think what makes the situation unique in terms of the United States is that he also wants revenge. You know, Putin uh, was long in the KGB. He was in the KGB when the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, He saw that as a deeply traumatic event, as, you know, the worst thing that had happened in Russian history. And then the loss of power afterwards on the global stage as humiliating. And, you know, Putin is somebody, uh, you know, who's surrounded with his advisors, is good at playing the long game, is 
she's trained uh, to snuff out weaknesses in his opponents, uh, you know, who he basically sees as the West or anyone who's not going to capitulate to his needs. And so he began a long-term plan that I think much of the Western world did not take seriously. You know, that this uh, assault on Western democracy by Russia did not begin in 2016 or even in 2014 uh, with the invasion of Ukraine, of, of Crimea. You know, it had been going on for a long time. You saw cases like uh, the poisoning of, uh, you know, Litvinenko abroad in the U.K. in 2006, and very little reaction uh, from the West. You know, there is this idea of, oh, Soviet Union is a threat past. It collapsed. We now just have, you know, a weakened, independent Russia um, that doesn't pose a threat to us, that's often our ally on things like the war on terror. Um, they have no ability to really hurt us. And that was conventional wisdom uh, for a very long time. And if you suggested otherwise, you were laughed at. You know, the most uh, obvious example of that is Obama literally laughing at, at Mitt Romney for bringing that up in the mm -hmm. 2012 presidential debate. And while not a fan of Romney, uh, he was correct in that regard. <laughs> So. Yeah. Wow. So what do you think? What do you think Putin wants to do? Like his goal for America, at least the way I see it, is um, everything is destabilized and we basically turn into another form of what's currently Russia. Yeah, um, you know, that's definitely his goal. And it's important to know that that's a shared goal, you know, not just uh, with Putin and the oligarchs and mafiosos that he works with in Russia. And this is basically an interconnected network where you can't quite tell where, you know, organized crime, corporate corruption and state corruption begin or end, you know, and that same structure is what is appearing now in the United States under Trump. And we've always had elements of the structure. It's not like, uh, you know, state corruption and certainly not corporate corruption are new to the U.S. We didn't need to import those. But what we have is basically a transnational crime syndicate uh, with actors from different countries all over the world, not just the U.S. and Russia, but also um, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, Turkey. You know, many people want to get in on this action. And the goal, uh, you know, is to, you know, to take resources, to enhance their personal wealth, uh, to protect it in offshore accounts. At heart, um, you know, these goals are kleptocratic. They often share a goal of white supremacy, and they use white supremacy to rally up a kind of faux populism that they then claim is, you know, uh, the underlying uh, Trump's alleged appeal. And, of course, you have to remember with both Trump and, and to some extent Putin as well, the appeal that the media claims these individuals have is, is much less than what they actually have. You know, Trump has been a historically unpopular president. He came in as the least popular president elected. He's still the least popular president, uh, but he's treated as if he has a mandate. It's hard to get accurate surveys about this kind of thing in Russia uh, because there are such harsh restrictions on criticizing the government. Uh, people are often compelled to say that they they like Putin. Uh, you know, they're going to be on record, you know, saying yeah. the opposite. Um, but, you know, there's dissatisfaction in Russia as well because the average person in Russia is suffering economic Economically and also, you know, has lost, um, you know, many rights. And we are seeing similar economic suffering across the United States. And, yeah, this group of kleptocrat 
plutocrat, oligarch elites, they just don't care. You know, they're just looking out for each other. They don't have the traditional conception of a nation state. You know, there's no loyalty to country, I think, for any of them. There's just loyalty to their families, their wealth, their wallets, and they will destabilize uh, different countries if it enhances their ability and, the, and only their ability, uh, you know, to to build their assets uh, and to profit and to stay in power and to be immune from prosecution. Because that's another thing is that, you know, for a long time they exploited legal loopholes, uh, both in government and especially, I think, in in the realm of white-collar crime. And they were able to be immune from prosecution for a long time. You saw that with people like Paul Manafort, who, you know, when he finally got indicted, it was for stuff he did decades ago. Now there's the threat of, you know, we know about all the crimes they've committed. Mueller committed many of them. If they leave office, if Trump leaves office, he can be prosecuted for these crimes. So, of course, he's going to do absolutely everything he can to hang on to power for as long as he can, to install his family in power for as long as he can, and he will use foreign aid to do that, especially aid from the Kremlin. And that's not a secret. You know, he's saying all these things uh, openly. (laughs) It's just a matter of people not taking them seriously. They keep thinking, oh, well, that can't happen. That's the worst-case scenario. Like, we are living in the worst-case scenario right now, and it's going to keep getting worse and worse unless people in power, uh, especially in Congress, confront it (laughs) head-on. Yes, and that brings me to my next question, which is about impeachment. And I know you have some strong opinions on that, but before uh, I ask you, I just want to say that there's, you know, I was watching MSNBC the other night, and I think it was on Chris Matthews. Howard Dean was on, and he was basically saying she's playing the long game she's playing three-dimensional chess and um you know he was he was basically saying that what she's doing is the smart thing to do and then you have critics arguing that trump is just as you said committing crimes in the open admitting that he's going to take foreign aid and he has basically already taken foreign aid um and that pelosi um is wrong to want 2020 to be the check on trump and then there was an article in the atlantic Uh, what Pelosi wants to do before impeachment. I'll just read this little blurb. For Pelosi, public sentiment doesn't mean following public opinion, but strategically shaping it so that it's more receptive to a strategic goal. It's not just laying the groundwork, it's fertilizing. That takes uh, message, discipline, unity, and patience, all of which will be necessary as pressure to impeach Trump continues to build. So what do you have to say to that? I don't think that she has a strategic plan. Uh, I think that when people start talking about leaders, quote, playing 3D chess, it's a way to try to rationalize inexplicable behavior. And we saw this exact same thing happen with Comey. Uh, You know, why isn't Comey stopping Trump? We saw them do it with Mueller. You know, why isn't he stopping Trump? And the answer is always, oh, you know, you have to trust the plan. They're playing 3D chess. They've got it all worked out. And, of course, they can't tell you their secret plan because then that would ruin it. And then you look at the results of those cases, and all it is is increased criminal impunity for Trump. Um, you know, there were there was no plan. There was no big secret Mueller plan, no big secret, no big Obama plan. And as people are sitting around contemplating the secret plan, uh, a criminal network, a crime syndicate, is purging agencies, packing courts, consolidating power, and doing everything they can uh, to enhance their own position. And their greatest asset is time. You know, that has been Trump's lifelong strategy, including when he was a private citizen, you know, committing crimes with the help of legal associates like Roy Cohn or Michael Cohen. It's to 
run out of the clock. It's to overwhelm the opponent, uh, get them tied up mm-hmm. in litigation, refuse to cooperate, uh, refuse to, you know, give legal documents or other things required by law, and then just let the clock run out as you build up your own power. I mean, it's, it's such a time-tested, so to speak, strategy that I don't understand uh, why our officials can't see it. You know, I didn't understand why they couldn't see that he was doing this in 2016. And I definitely don't understand how Pelosi and others can't see them doing this right now because it's already worked. You know, this is how they basically neutered uh, the Mueller probe. And so, you know, I, I don't find what she's doing to have any basis in logic or law, you know, because first of all, you don't impeach based on polling or based on public sentiment or on your ability to quote shape it. Uh, you know, you, you impeach because it's your constitutional duty. Mm-hmm. You impeach because the president has committed impeachable offenses on a daily or weekly be- basis for over two years. You know, just putting the Mueller stuff aside, you have emoluments, you have abuse of the pardon power, abuse of migrants on the border. And absolutely none of these are things that we can just sit around and wait to get better. You know, we can't wait until 2020 uh, and let people die and let people lose their rights. Like, that's just Congress needs to take action now. Um, And so it is frustrating. I also think another grave mistake she's making, and this one surprised me a little, is, you know, Pelosi is known, I guess, as this great tactician, you know, as this kind of uh, a person who's able to rally up support for the Democratic Party. She basically has fractured the Democratic Party more than I've seen it in any time since maybe the 2016 primaries uh, because of her stances on impeachment in which she's put out disinformation. You know, she's talked about Trump's self-impeaching. She's talked about impeaching at the ballot box. Those are both not things. She's told people that investigative committees will be disbanded if there's impeachment hearings. That's not true. Uh, She said that Trump will be prosecuted for crimes if the impeachment hearings fail. That's not true. She said that McConnell uh, needs to basically give permission to the House. I mean, that's certainly not true. This this is the House's job. And she is the Speaker of the House, and she's not doing her job. Uh, And so what that has done is demoralized the base. You know, we had the big blue wave. We had all these people turn out uh, to volunteer and canvas, and people were really excited about, you know, all these new candidates that got in this freshman class. And, you know, Pelosi opposes her own base. You know, 80% of Democrats want impeachment, and she has been insulting, you know, some of the most prominent new members of Congress. I just don't see how any of that is helpful uh, to democracy. You know, it's both insulting. It's also, you know, it's facilitating in uh, dereliction of duty, mm-hmm. I think, in what her constitutional obligation is in terms of holding this administration accountable. How... I mean, I, I don't know too much about this, so maybe you can enlighten me and my listeners who don't know. Um, going forward with impeachment, obviously, um, that's going to bring a lot of this out into the public. A lot of the Mueller report, stuff that Trump's done, stuff that Americans just aren't aware of. But I know that impeachment can take a while. And so I'm just wondering, with with all these people who are refusing to show up to testify, how um, how does impeachment... Um, work to the demo, and, and I'm not asking this saying that I don't believe any particular thing. I just want to hear what your thing is, how you have to say it about how impeachment is going to help if people are not going to show up to testify. And, um, and then I also kind of want to know, second question, how long do you think we need to have a successful, a successful impeachment? 
No, those are good questions. Um, on my podcast on Gaslit Nation, I interviewed a constitutional law expert whose main focus is impeachment, John Bonifaz, because I have these questions too. Um, in terms of people dishonoring subpoenas, not showing up, you know, that's been a problem that's been going on with all of these oversight committees. You have greater subpoena power um, if you're doing this through the process of impeachment hearings. Also, Congress needs to act. You know, they need to, you know, not just hold people in contempt, uh, but arrest them, you know, actually put this process into place so that there's serious consequences, find them, you know, not just put out a sternly worded letter, which has basically been their strategy so far. They need to take this very seriously. Um, it is a process. You know, I think another thing that Pelosi has been kind of putting out there is that you know, she makes it sound like it's some snap decision, like everyone just sits down one day and votes yes or no to impeach Trump. The, the point of impeachment, you know, the benefit of it for the American public is the hearings, because mm -hmm. the hearings take a long time, and they present evidence to the American public, and they do so in a way that's free of media bias. So you're not getting your news from, like, MSNBC or Fox. You're not getting it with some sort of slant. You're hearing it straight from the people who are implicated. If those people don't show up uh, on the Republican side, it is still possible to discuss what they did, uh, in part because there were so many witnesses to these crimes. There are members of the intelligence community, members of the FBI. Uh, you know, I think a great person to testify would be Senator Harry Reid, who back in 2016 warned that Russia was planning to falsify our election results. Like, that was a huge claim. When he said that in, I believe it was uh, the end of July 2016, you know, I was shook. I was very worried about the security of our election at that time. And he wrote that in an open letter to James Comey, who then ignored it. And then rewrote another letter to Comey in October of 2016 saying, you know, seriously, you've got to do something about it. Russia is threatening the integrity of the election. And Comey did again, went after uh, Hillary Clinton. They have not been asked about that. Like, he hasn't testified. I think that, you know, he's a more obvious choice for somebody who perhaps is willing uh, mm -hmm. to give the full details now of everything that happened in terms of threats in our elections uh, when he wasn't necessarily willing to in 2016 because of opposition not just from Mitch McConnell and the GOP, who stonewalled the whole thing, but the timidity of the Obama administration, because, you know, they basically had the Pelosi strategy. They were like, oh, we'll just wait for Hillary to win, and then, you know, we'll sort this stuff out afterwards. And then, of course, Hillary didn't win, and I think one of the main reasons she didn't win is because Trump, Russia, and other collaborators went to great extent to make sure it was impossible for her to win. Mm -hmm. And they really should have been more aware that, like, yes, their plan can actually succeed. Like, yes, these people, they are intelligent, they are competent. They put out this kind of veneer of, you know, chaos and idiocy. But underneath that, they are experienced criminals. And they committed a crime against the American people uh, by tampering with the election. So, yeah, I mean, there are so many people that are implicated in this, uh, whether, you know, as witnesses, victims or perpetrators, that potentially these hearings on and on and on uh, until the election itself or even after. And in my mind, you know, it needs to take as long as it takes because mm -hmm. there's not a timeline on truth and transparency. And I think that truth and transparency are the only things that can possibly heal, you know, a deeply wounded and divided country. You know, we have the time in the world for that. This is an incredibly serious offense. Uh, you know, the integrity of our democracy is at stake. Our constitution is at stake. You need to make time for that. You need to prioritize that. So I'm fine with them, you know, just taking as long as they need, but they need to get that process started now. Because if they don't, uh, the alternative that certainly Trump has in mind is show trials.
is, you know, investigating the investigators and making a spectacle out of that. Right. So do you think that, um, like, let's say, I, I think in the last couple of weeks, we're, I don't know if the number is accurate, but we're up to at least 67 um, Democrats who are calling for impeachment in the House. I think it's the House. Um, it has to be because it's probably, I don't know if they're doing it in the Senate. But anyway, um, let's just say that there's this overwhelming support from the Democratic Party to start impeachment hearings. And that happens over the course of the next two or three months. And then those hearings begin. Do you think that there's, are we already too late? Is there, an, is there like a mark where, where it's too late or does it matter? I mean, I basically have the, like, Han Solo and Star Wars attitude of never tell me the odds. Like, I'm not even (laughs) considering this from the point of is it too late? Because in my mind, you know, back in 2016, before the election, I kept warning everybody, it's going to be too late if they actually get into power because they're going to prevent any meaningful investigation into their criminal activity and any consequences. And, you know, I was explaining it. It actually is not that hard to turn a democracy into an autocracy, and here's how you do it. And this is these are the steps they're taking. So in one sense, our best bet really was three years ago. That said, you know, since when do we just roll over and mm-hmm. give up and hand over our nation to criminals? Like, you have to fight back. I don't know if we will win, but I do think that, you know, there is never uh, a negative consequence of the truth coming out. And I don't care, you know, who is ends up being implicated, whether through their complicity or their negligence, in the story of what happened in this election and, more broadly speaking, this kleptocratic takeover of the United States, like, the people have a right to know, and so this is really about morality, you know, this is about principles. If you look at any other great struggle in our nation's history, you know, if people had the attitude of, oh, it's, it's too late to fix things, like, oh, you know, we have slavery, but we've had it for 200 years, you know, it's, it's too late, and honestly, there, you know, there were many people who had that attitude of, like, oh, well, our economy depends on it, and it's just part of the way things are, and it took people say, just putting their foot down and saying, no, absolutely not, you know, we are still Sticking to our principles, we are honoring, you know, the ideals of our Constitution that have never been uh, fully, you know, put into practice in real life, and we're going to fight, and that's what I would like people to do. I, I would be less frustrated with the Democratic leadership if I felt that they were trying and failing, but I don't even really see them trying. Some of them are. I mean, some of them are really sticking their necks out and, you know, trying to bring accountability to this administration. Others, like Pelosi, uh, they, they seem to be content to run out what they see as their own clock, not understanding that this correlates exactly with what Trump would like them to do, which is Basically, he would like them to do nothing so that he could continue this little, you know, crime spree he's got going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and they need to wake up to that reality. So, so how do you handle some of the folks out there, some of the Democratic voters who are very, very, very protective of Pelosi, and they take any call for impeachment as some kind of um, attack on her? Because the way I look at it is, I am for impeachment, and I, I feel like, I mean, I don't attack they her. Take it as- yeah, they they, th- they act like you're attacking her and, and treating her poorly, but it's like, hey, we're American citizens, and at this point in democracy, we still have a right to voice our hopes, our demands, and our opinions to our leaders. And I feel like that's, exactly. that's what we're doing. I mean, so do you, what do you tell people who are... I mean, I, I find this whole phenomenon of people taking calls for impeachment as an attack on Pelosi, or demanding, you know, when we demand that Pelosi have an impeachment inquiry, she's literally the person who is able to do that. Like, mm-hmm. there isn't an alternative. There isn't someone else uh, to ask here, and she's been blocking other, uh, you know, members of the House who want this inquiry 
from having it. So we have no choice uh, but to center on Pelosi. It's not personal. It's because she's the Speaker of the House. It's because she's in that position. I find it very sad and very strange um, that in America, we there are some folks who think that voicing criticism of a you know elected official's actions when we are you know that official is there to represent us, we pay the salary of that official through our tax money. Um, that they think that that's an un-American thing to do. In my mind, you know, that is the most yes to do. That is why we fought, you know, for why Americans uh, fought for their rights, you know, at the founding of our country. And, you know, you mentioned you had lived in the Soviet Union in the early 1980s. And, you know, I've lived in authoritarian and semi-authoritarian states of the former Soviet Union and other countries as well, where if you voice this kind of criticism, even though it's not personal, it's not vindictive, it's not nasty, just saying, I think they're making a bad decision, I think this representative is doing things that are actually hurting our country, you can end up in jail, mm-hmm. you can end up fined, you could lose your career, you could have your family attacked. You know, it is it is an enormous uh, privilege, you know, it is a right and a privilege to be able to speak our mind about our elected officials, and we should all continue to do so without fearing consequences, and they should expect to hear from us. You know, they are public servants, and they are here to serve the public, and it seems that some of them have gotten very confused about that concept. You know, it's much more obvious in the Republican Party, uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, you see it among Democrats, too, and that's really a shame, because uh, we should never take that right for granted. That is one of the rights that the Trump administration wants to take away, yeah. you know, certainly in terms of criticizing him. So we should exercise it, uh, you know, as we possibly can while we have the opportunity, just so that we don't forget, you know, what are our laws? What are our values? What are we fighting for? Like, we need to articulate those concepts. Yes. And how confident are you um, as the calls for impeachment grow? Do you, or I should say, do you have confidence that, you know, if we get up to, a right now we're at 67, if we get up to a much higher number, do you think Pelosi will say, all right, this is that what she's waiting for? Or do you think that she's always going to try to push it off? What's your feeling on that? I mean, I tend to think she's always going to push it off because she keeps shifting the goalposts now. You know, another thing she had asked for was bipartisan support, uh, which right. even I thought was, you yeah, know, impossible. But then you, you actually got that. You got Justin Amash right, coming out right. for impeachment. <laughs> and I would think others would, too. And, you yeah. know, my guess is that there are a large number of Democrats in the House who are withholding their support of impeachment because of Pelosi, because she's directing them to, mm-hmm. and she's saying that if you're for impeachment, it's divisive. You will divide the country. Uh, and, you know, there's also been question about, will these people be hurt financially in their campaigns? Like, will they be punished somehow by the Democratic leadership for being for impeachment, which is because, you know, impeachment is just doing your constitutional duty hold a tyrannical or accountable like this shouldn't be controversial and one thing that's weird to me is this is a very uncontroversial position to have prior to the time Pelosi came out against it like I've been for impeachment since Trump first committed an impeachable offense which of course is like a week after taking yeah. office he violated uh, the emoluments clause and I was like all right well there you go you know you've got your impeachable offense and then he just kept on doing yeah. it so I've been for impeachment 
for a very long time, you know, and others have as well. And, you know, most Democrats were too. And so it was really weird to kind of see the sudden turn where it became politicized. It became about polls instead of principles. It became about this sort of idea of what America wants. I mean, Americans are are disillusioned. They're exhausted. They're frightened. Mm -hmm. And I think an organized process of uh, transparency, you know, where evidence is presented to you about what is happening in your government is good for everyone. And honestly, it's it's not divisive. It's good Mm -hmm. for or the Trump voters. I mean, this is an argument I hear like no one making, but they have as much right to this information and to what's going on in their government as people who oppose Trump do. Like, we are all Americans. We all deserve uh, this information. And it's strange to me that she would want to make it a partisan issue, where I, I see it as a very nonpartisan uh, national security crisis, an imminent one, an ongoing one. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it's been frustrating. Uh, you know, folks have been bringing up the fact that she refused to impeach uh, Bush or join that cause in 2006. Um, I think it's a different situation. Yeah. I mean, I do think that Bush should have been impeached, but, you know, there was no question that Bush was going to leave office somehow in 2008. You know, he had done right. his two terms. He had two years left. There wasn't as much at stake. Uh, the crimes domestically were not as great. Um, but, you know, with Trump, we have a president uh, who, you know, potentially can get legitimately, I suppose, four more years in office if he mm-hmm. wins, quote unquote, in 2020. Um, but even longer, you know, he's talking about abolishing term limits. So we have a very urgent catastrophe on our hands. And the longer we let it fester, the harder it will be to fight it. And I think that they certainly should have learned that from the last couple of years. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's especially when you take a look what um, happened in Hong Kong when you had 2 million people marching in the streets out of uh, 7 million population. And even though um, they were able to successfully thwart uh, that bill, it it may not, you know, it's not over. But the people were showing the government what they wanted. And I, I feel like, how can we sit by? But I think part of the reason that we do is because every day, you know, we're hit with all this information, we're hit with all these breaking stories, and we become immune to it. And then the other thing is that, you know, oftentimes when I go to the grocery store, and I talk about this on the podcast, I like to talk to the people who are, you know, who are doing, ringing up my groceries, and I'll say things like, are you aware Russia is, attack- Russia is attacking us? And they look at me like, huh? Because they, you know, mm-hmm. if it were the Twin Towers, they would immediately understand that we're under attack. But because it's a cyber, they're using cyber warfare, they, they really don't even know. And I asked this one woman, I'm like, like, are you aware this is happening? And she's like, what? And I said, well, are you familiar with the Mueller report? And she did say she knew what that was, but she hadn't read it. And I said, well, you should read it. And then it'll give you a better understanding. And I think that's what we need the impeachment hearings for. It's like you were saying, the Trump voters need to understand what's happening. I believe there was some woman who was voting for Trump who was completely ignorant of everything that was going on. And I guess there was a town hall or whatever it was. And she found out, I think she was still going to vote for Trump anyway, but still she hadn't found, she hadn't heard any of this. So, you know, Mm -hmm. we've we've got these um, partisan, I mean, even though MSNBC is truthful, it's still the liberal network. And then you've got the conservative network. And we don't have this one network where we can just go to, everybody believes the one um, newscaster who's not giving his opinion or her opinion. It's just about, here's the facts. So, we don't have that. And what I wanted to ask you, and I don't even know if you can answer this, but um, A, can we trust, trust 2020? And if you feel that we can't at this point, how can we, um, how can we feel or what can we do to beat the odds for 2020? Because 
aside from gerrymandering and voter suppression and Republican dirty tricks, we're also dealing with foreign governments meddling in our elections. At least we know for sure Russia is. So what can we do as Americans to overcome all of those obstacles? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up all those different issues because we really do have a bunch and they're interrelated. Like we have domestic voter suppression, you know, which we had in 2016, and we have foreign interference. And, you know, one of the tactics that Russia used was to hack voter databases. Mm -hmm. And this has never been uh, fully investigated. We never got the full story. But a pretty obvious tactic would be to eliminate people from so that when they show up to vote, they can't. Um, and then it seems to be, the, you know, the cause of that would seem to be voter disenfranchisement uh, as a result, for example, of new ID laws. Like, I kind of wonder, you know, what happened uh, in certain states in regard to that, and I wish that we, that's another thing we should be having hearings on. Um, you know, but that said, yeah, the question of whether to trust 2020 is tough. Um, you know, I still don't fully trust 2016. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, um, saying that the election is illegitimate is exactly what Trump is going to do uh, if he loses. Yeah. I mean, we, we know that. He's not going to concede. He's not going to just walk away from office. He has a you know, a bad yet rational reason for this, which is that he will lose his power, his money, and he will probably or possibly be arrested. So, of course, he wants to do anything he can possible to remain in that office and be immune from prosecution. Um, you know, the, the biggest, there are things that people should have been doing, like having a paper ballot system, uh, specifically a hand-marked paper ballot system. If you go on Twitter, uh, Jenny Cohn is someone who has gone on about why we are, why we need this, why our electronic uh, voter system, voting systems are susceptible to hackers. They are not actually safe. Uh, a lot of these companies are linked up with, uh, you know, shady parties um, working with the GOP. You know, there are a lot of questions about that. It's very under-investigated as a topic. Um, you know, and my solution for this in 2018, because I was worried about it then as well, was mass voter turnout. You know, essentially the blue yeah. wave. Like, you overpower right. the polls so that people know. You know, there's basically, like, the margin is so wide that, um, you know, everyone will know who actually one, uh, there'll be objective evidence of this. I also encourage people to switch to paper ballots and to take these other initiatives. Uh, they didn't do that. That's how we got Stacey Abrams' uh, situation in Georgia. Yeah. I am worried about more things like that. But, you know, one thing that concerns me is that I think that's less likely at this point, and it could change, uh, to happen in 2020 because the base has become so demoralized. And, you know, not just Democratic voters, but independent voters who, you know, just simply want accountability. They thought that the Democrats taking the House would mean change. They thought that policies might get passed, but especially that things like impeachment hearings would begin, um, or that the Mueller report would be acted upon and Congress would uphold its mm -hmm. duty. And they're kind of sitting there like, well, geez, you know, like, what difference does it make whether I vote or not if the Democrats aren't going to do anything? It's going to be a check on executive power and i still say vote anyway like right. vote in overwhelming numbers get out and do it bring your friends bring everyone you know to vote because one party is an apocalyptic cult linked to a transnational crime syndicate uh and another party is flawed and often ineffective but does have good people and at least is trying at least right. their baseline goal is not the destruction of our country and our planet and that's another thing to you know people should really keep in mind is who will be making decisions 
mentioned some things like climate change that, you know, will out, they, they will last longer than any administration. You know, what policies are passed in the next four years determines the fate of our planet, of humanity. So that's a pretty big reason to go out and vote. Um, and I do recommend, despite my frustration, that people vote for the Democrats for that reason. Right. And I agree. And I think it's also important, you know, what in 2016, I saw some people saying that their um, registration had changed from Democratic to Republican. A lot of independents who had changed over to Democrats uh, to vote for Hillary were noting that they got to the polls and they found that they were um, registered as Republicans, even though they had registered as Democrats. So I'd like to just add, keep up with that. Make sure if you're yeah, going to physically, yeah, if you're physically going to go vote, then the day that you vote, make sure go online and make sure you are registered as a Democrat because um, and, and always just do it as early as you possibly can, because if you wait till the last minute, there's going to be problems. So I just want to add, check your registration and vote as early as possible. Um, yeah, I definitely recommend that. And also, if you're checking your registration online, like screenshot that yes. check or print it out, like give some sort of evidence of when you checked it so that if something comes up, you're able, you know, to show it. And, you know, that especially is important for states that don't have open primaries, you know, where you actually have to be registered in a particular party to vote for it. That's, that's not the case in my state, but, um, but yes. other people in most states it is. Yeah, definitely. Take a screenshot, print it out, make sure you have evidence because that way um, you can prove. I mean, this is such a tough fight and it's so scary. And um, now I, I remember a while back you tweeted and I can't exactly remember what you said, but you were basically talking about how to survive in this kind of um, environment, this regime, this they want to they're kleptic. I can't even say the word autocrats and how do you say it? Kleptocrats. Um, <laughs> and, and so like as far as either staying mentally healthy or what are the things that Americans can do to fight back? Uh, what advice do you have? Because I mean, first of all, there's fatigue and there's demoral, you know, people are demoralized as you were saying. Um, how can people stay engaged? Yeah, no, those are great questions, um, and it's especially now. You know, I feel like we're we're really at a low point um, because people are exhausted from fighting mm -hmm. this war. We assumed that officials might uh, do more than they have, and that it wouldn't all you know be on our shoulders. Uh, I think a lot of folks are, are very traumatized, looking, for example, at the treatment and the abuse of migrants, um, mm -hmm. especially yeah. migrant children. You know, it's it's deep, it's horrifying. You know, it it breaks me uh, inside to see it mm -hmm. too, and often it, it is hard to keep going. Um, you know, I think one thing to do is to, to share the burden of this fight, you know, and if you need to step back, other people will step in. You know, it's not all on one person's shoulders, you know, and nor should it be. And I think also, you know, a diverse coalition and a diverse way of fighting this is beneficial. You know, everyone has different talents and abilities. Everyone has different limitations. Uh, I think that things like mass protests, uh, you know, ongoing rotating protests could be somewhat effective, um, you know, if they're organized well. Uh, it's much more difficult for us in the United States to do this than it is somewhere like South Korea 
or Hong Kong, uh, just because that's, you know, it's a smaller, mm-hmm. a much, much smaller country, um, you know, and it's not so spread out. But we have had, you know, large protests uh, during the Trump administration's run. I think the biggest protests in history were capable of doing it. I One thing that, you know, it gives me pause to some extent is, you know, what effect does this have on the administration or even on the Democratic Party with Pelosi? I'm not sure what it would do, but, it, you know, what it does do, though, is show a refusal to bow down. It enables people to get to know each other, to get their, to know their community. Uh, that's something else I really recommend is getting involved locally uh, with, you know, organizations and groups that need support and help because things play out differently wherever you are. You know, like yeah. I'm in St. Louis, I'm in Missouri. You know, we just lost our reproductive rights. Uh, mm-hmm. We're surrounded by floodwaters, you know, caused by climate change. So, like, those are two issues that are very much on the forefront of the minds of progressive activists here. It's different, uh, you know, depending where you are. Everyone has kind of battles that are microcosms of this broader problem of abusive power um, and a kleptocratic, you know, crime syndicate, you know, in office. Um, so, you know, my advice on what to do in terms of activism kind of varies. But one thing that everyone can do is just be honest about the situation and continue to document it and continue to tell the truth and never accept it. You know, never just roll over. Like, it's right. one thing to expect it and assume that people will do the worst because they will. But it's, it's completely different to psychologically just give in to it and say, well, I guess that's, you know, the way things are going to be. And I, I shouldn't bother to protest it or stand up for myself or stand up for uh, people who are being abused, you know, especially marginalized people. Like, you should always stand up for other people. Like, it's, it's the most basic piece of advice yeah. I have is that if someone is vulnerable and they're being attacked, then fight for them, you know, stand up for them. If everyone would do that, uh, you know, if everyone was looking out for someone in a weaker position than them, we would be in much better shape. So just, I don't know, I just encourage people to kind of reconnect with their moral compass. Uh, don't give in completely to cynicism and, you know, take it from there. Yeah, I mean, I see a lot of people saying, oh, I don't know what to do. I just want to give up. Democratic leadership isn't doing anything. And it's like, it's just like you're saying, well, figure out, take a break if you need to break, you know, go smell the roses, go see a funny movie, whatever it is that you need to do, get your rest, but then join the fight again. And then there's so many different ways that you can do that. And um, it's just uh, the other thing that I wanted, I want to ask you two more questions, but one is how, you know, I see so many people, we did this in 2016, people are still doing it. Um, How can we identify disinformation and avoid spreading it? Yeah, that's a good question, um, and it's become harder and harder because of technology and yeah. because of you know the lack of responsibility of companies like Twitter or Facebook to get rid of troll accounts and bot accounts and propaganda. Um, you know, one thing I always encourage people to do is look for the primary source. Like, don't retweet something that seems uh, you know suspect or unusual without checking uh, that it appears multiple times. And honestly, this is an example of the kind of thing I think is unacceptable. For example, with Pelosi. Like when people were retweeting that doctored video made to look her make that was made to make her look drunk, you know, that to me is an attack. That's an actual attack on Pelosi, which I oppose. Um, And, you know, you can figure out that that wasn't real by going to the primary source and seeing it. There's going to be a lot more of that kind of manipulation, like deep fake videos, I think, as we get closer to the election. Uh, So that's one thing to do. I'm glad to see that candidates are preparing for this. At least some of them are. Like Elizabeth Warren has an entire section on her website just based on, you know, it just debunks uh, propaganda and myths. Um, You know, a problem of living 
under the Trump administration, though, is that the you know they want to annihilate the very concept of truth. They want to make it so it's so difficult to find the truth that people don't bother. Um, and it really does create a struggle. This isn't unique to America. We're seeing this phenomenon all over the world. Um, I basically just, you know, I encourage people to look for consistency in who they get their news from. You know, is a, is a person or an outlet consistent over time? Mm-hmm. Do their predictions hold up? Do their analyses hold up? Uh, if they've taken a sudden 180 turn, uh, maybe <laughs> question that a little. Uh, and, you know, just be be skeptical without being completely cynical. And there's a hard line to walk. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I look at this stuff all day long, and I have to you know, do extra research to figure out what's true and what's not. So I'm often thinking about, you know, the average American, like how the hell are they parsing this? And that's why I, you know, I don't blame people for not either reading the Mueller report or understanding what's in it. My guess is that they started to read it and couldn't understand what the hell any of this was And that's why we need hearings. That's another reason we need this very direct presentation of evidence under oath in a format that everyone can understand. Um, I don't think people should feel bad for not understanding what's going on because it's really complicated. And, you know, uh, people with expertise are struggling to to get these answers. So anyway, yeah, uh, I guess just do the best you can. Um, You know, I don't have concrete advice because the, the mechanisms of spreading information keep changing, which is its own uh, its own struggle. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I agree with you, and it's true. It's check the sources, and sometimes people don't even realize that when you're reading a blog post, um, there is a, a source in the... If, it should have a source. If it's making some kind of a claim, um, then then there should be a link, a URL. So you, you see a word that's blue, click on that, see what the source is. Sometimes you're going to find that those sources are advertising um, real estate agents. I, I've seen mm-hmm. that, you know. So, so when you see those kinds of things, don't fall for it. Also, don't just see a headline and then, you know, have a knee-jerk reaction without reading the article and sharing that information because you don't know. I mean, if it's from CNN, even if it's from something, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, read the article because sometimes the headline isn't really representative of what's in the article. It can be confusing. So, you know, I mean, I I used to write for, uh, it was called Liberals Unite, which we no longer, it's no longer up because Facebook killed everything that uh, all of our pages last year in that big purge. Um, But, you know, we always sourced everything. So yes, it was a small independent blog and it was basically our opinions. But whenever we wrote about, you know, political happenings, we included sources from, you know, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Daily Beast, whatever. So we knew, or that readers would know that we're not just pulling stuff out of our butt. (laughs) So, right. uh, um, Now, the last thing I want to ask you and kind of bring up, and I kind of love this, is that you and Andrea have referred to Elizabeth Warren as the Nazi hunter. (laughs) So I think she is awesome. And I wanted to know is she your pick for 2020, or have you made any kind of an announcement? Yeah, I mean, she is my pick, and I went into this year uh, assuming that I would not make a decision until I'd seen the debate, Me too. Like, seen everyone's policy plans and proposals. I was not at all uh, expecting to embrace any candidate, yeah. including her, this early, but she's just really a remarkable candidate. You know, she has actual plans. She understands the crisis of the moment. She understands how so many different crises that America has faced over the last few decades intersect, and she has, you know, 
logical, rational plans uh, to improve them. I, I honestly, I'm like amazed at our good fortune in this yeah. sense of having Elizabeth Warren, because I basically thought it was going to come down to, you know, you vote for Trump or you vote for like not Trump. And right. it's going to be some kind of like mediocre person who wouldn't get folks excited, who didn't really understand, uh, you know, the depth of the problems that we're facing. And then we get Warren. And one thing I said on New Year's Day this year was, you know, I'm going to judge the candidates in large part by how they react to the crises of 2019, because we're in for a year of political chaos, and we need someone who can think on their feet and who has uh, practical suggestions for how to fight these problems. And she's been leading the way, like everything from her policy proposals to being the first candidate uh, to speak out in favor of impeachment. Mm -hmm. She understands the stakes. And the other thing folks need to watch out for is that in 2020, as I said, Trump is very unlikely to just concede if he loses. He is very likely to put up a big, fake, legal battle uh, in which he lies compulsively, in which he threatens people, in which he tries to get his base to use violence. You Mm -hmm. need a candidate who is tough enough to stand up to that, who's not just going to and be like, okay, well, I guess that's protocol and that's that if they clearly were robbed of the election. Like, you need a real fighter. And that's what she strikes me as. I mean, that's why Andrea and I, you know, we said in a time of Nazis, real Nazis, you need a Nazi hunter. And we said that before (laughs) we both uh, kind of fell in love with Warren. But she lives up to that. She will actually fight for us and fight for our country and not get scared. Uh, And so I deeply appreciate that. Yeah, she's, I mean, honestly, I felt exactly like you. I didn't want to fall in love. I even wrote a a blog post about it. Don't fall in love with the candidate. And that's it. I'm in love. And I, I, you know, but it's for everything that you said. She checks every single box. And frankly, I didn't have the faith that she would be strong enough to do it. And she blew me away. So she continues to grow. And I hope that, um, uh, you know, it seems like her her rise to the top is slow and steady. So it's a strong, mm-hmm. it's not just like this, Poo! and she's at the top and she could quickly fall. I think she's building a very solid foundation of support. And I've been seeing online, a lot of people are like, you know, I wasn't sure about her at the beginning. And I've always loved her as a senator. But as far as a presidential candidate, I wasn't sure she had the stuff. And Obviously, I do think she does, but I'm seeing more and more people online. Yeah, this I, I'm starting to really be impressed by her. I'm I'm for her, so I'm seeing more people um, come around to this, and I just hope that we, as a country, don't act like freaking idiots like we did in 2016. Like a woman is like, oh my god, is America ready for a woman? It's like, are you kidding me? Yeah. It's 2019. I mean, hopefully people have learned their their lesson from that. I think to some extent they have. I mean, just the fact that we have so many female candidates yeah. this year uh, has, you know, it's taken the whole novelty aspect of that out. And, you know, one thing that's important about Warren is whether or not she wins or loses the primary. I think she's jolted America out of this Trumpian reality. She's actually made people sit up and think, wow, we could have something else and we deserve yeah. something else. We deserve something better. And, you know, when I see her plans, when she tweets them out, it's like this feeling comes over me of, oh, God, I'm not on the defense anymore. I'm not constantly in reactive mode. I'm thinking in a positive way about my country's future, about my children's future in this country. And I haven't thought this way in so long because it's always just been like catching the criminals, reacting to the atrocity. And I think a lot of folks really, they like that about her. You know, it's like she's also, it's a combination of that, that idealism with 
realism, you know, with pragmatism. She's not just saying, oh, we should do this. She's right. saying, here's how we do it. Here's how we pay for it. Uh, and so many folks have gotten, you know, jerked around by all these other politicians that I think <laughs> they like to see the numbers and mm-hmm. seeing a plan. So, yeah, you know, fingers crossed. Yes, absolutely. Well, geez, thank you so much for uh, being a guest on the show. I love talking to you. I love following you. And everybody out there, follow Sarah um, on Twitter at Sarah Kenzior. Sarah, uh, wait, what, what is your Twitter handle? Yeah, yeah Sarah, Sarah Kenzier. Kenzier. And then listen to her podcasts on patreon.com slash gaslit. That's Gaslit Nation on, on Patreon. Such interesting stuff. Thank you again uh, for coming on the show, and I hope you'll come back. Oh, thank you. Have a great day. All right, you too. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. Um, I just want to say, wow, I'm, I'm so overwhelmed. She was amazing. And uh, I'm going to be going into the end another thing segment, as I promised, all by myself, talking about Gen X women and all their conflicting messages. But I definitely want to remind everybody to to follow both Steph and I on Twitter. And Steph is at Lady Brain Show. I am at Author Kimberly, and that's K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y, because my mom had to throw that uh, extra in just to be confusing. And also, um, please comment on Patreon. I'd love to hear what you think. I know there are people out there who are defending Nancy Pelosi as if we're attacking her, and I'm, I'm on board with Sarah. I don't feel like it's an attack. I feel like it is our um, right to speak up and to, man, to demand that our leaders do what we think is appropriate. And so I would love to see or hear from you, especially if maybe Sarah changed your mind. Um, but either way, whether you have a critique or if you're in agreement, um, give us a comment on patreon.com and stay tuned for And Another Thing. See you next time. <laughs>